Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Electoral College and Presidential Elections. And uh, Richard, we're at this point every four years when we have a presidential election. We sort of go through this national civics lesson where people have to relearn what the Electoral College is. <laughs> and let me just sort of start for our audience. I mean just to restate the basics here, in the U.S., we don't elect our president through a popular vote. You get elected by winning a majority of the Electoral College, and the way that the Electoral College works is that each state has a certain number of votes or electors, which is equal to the number of representatives it has in Congress. So if you're California and you've got 53 House seats and two senators – 55 electoral votes. Yeah. And um, now this is this is distinct from the popular vote, although not unrelated to it because each state's electoral votes with a couple of sort of minor exceptions go to the candidate who won the popular vote uh, in that state. So you could theoretically win the popular vote in California by just one voter, but you'd get all 55 of the electoral mm-hmm. votes and, and your opponent will get none. So Richard, even – that description is probably a little confusing if you're unfamiliar with the system. So why don't we start with the question that a novice might have. Why did the founding fathers do this? What did they think they were accomplishing with the Electoral College? Well, first of all, you have to ask yourself why you call this a college. And the closest parallel is to the College of Cardinals. And what you have to do is to figure out the way in which the Catholic Church elects its pope and then compare it to the way in which the founders thought that they would elect their president. And the key thing to understand about a college in this sense is that it's a deliberative body. And everybody sort of gets together and they have multiple ballots until they agree on a consensus candidate. And at this particular point, there's reasoned arguments, political intrigue of one sort or another. And one of the things that you do, whether you're the Catholic Church or any other body that's engaged in deliberation, is you never reveal the records to the public at large because it will make you look very sad and very unhappy indeed. And when we started in the United States, the theory wasn't one of popular democracy. It was a theory of republicanism, and that's the antithesis of democracy in the sense that you want all sorts of roadblocks to be placed between the will of the people on the one hand and the outcome on the other. And so in some cases, you have limitations on who can vote by property qualifications. In the Senate, uh, the original scheme was that the state legislatures picked their senators by some kind of a majority vote. Uh, and that the populace was shut out of it all, and that the president was to be picked indirectly as a protection against popular will by having each state to have a certain number of delegates to the electoral college. Then they would sit down in some confabulation and, and decide this thing. Back in 1791, there were relatively few votes in the electoral college because the country wasn't big, and you could sort of imagine how this thing might work. By 1800, everybody understood that this was a disaster because of the huge fight between Jefferson and Adams, which Jefferson eventually won. And what happened is we then indulged in a fiction. And the fiction that we indulged in was that each of the electorates agreed in advance to bind themselves to the candidate for whom they had declared. And so instead of having a deliberation, you counted. 
Today, if you didn't have electors, it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference. All you need to do is to have Joe the computer come along and register all the votes in state A based upon the popular vote in that particular state, which can then lead to the anomaly, although it's one that requires some explanation, in which it turns out that somebody who wins a majority of the states in the Electoral College by very small votes can still become the president, even though the popular votes in the state in which he is lost are enormous, and yet those votes in some sense are wasted, so that the situation is he who hath the fewer popular votes nonetheless wins the presidency. And today, when we have much more powerful democratic sensibilities on majority votes and so forth, this looks to be a dangerous anomaly indeed. So this is the core criticism, and of course it flared up most recently after the 2000 election where you had George W. Bush win the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And as a result of that, there's a proposal out there – there's a number of them, but there's one that's uh, been – has had more traction than others. It's already been adopted by I think 11 states where the idea is to form uh, an interstate compact that would bind the signatory states once there are enough of them to determine the outcome of an election that they would all agree to give their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote regardless of how their state actually voted. And of course the reason that you need such a Baroque workaround is that otherwise you'd have to amend the constitution to get get rid of the system. And and Richard, the argument that those people make, to your point about our democratic sensibilities, it does have sort of an innate appeal to the modern ear, which is why shouldn't we just have a system where the person who gets the most votes wins? How how would you answer that? Well, look, first of all, you have to understand that the Current votes where you have these anomalies is relatively meaningless in the grand scheme of things. If you look right now at the distribution of electoral effort in the typical election, which this one decidedly is not, what you'll typically discover is that there are half a dozen or ten battleground states in which everybody spends all of their efforts. And this means that the Republicans spend virtually no time in Texas and the Democrats spend no time in New York because it doesn't matter the slightest as to whether they win by 56 percent to 56 Uh, So if that's what the system is, what happens is the popular vote doesn't tell you anything because imagine what would happen if we switched to a straight popular vote system. At this particular point, the Democrats would never go to Texas and the Republicans would never go to New York, but the Republicans would spend all their time in Texas and the Democrats all their time in New York because generally speaking, it's a lot easier uh, to win an election by getting out people who are committed in your favor than it is to try to persuade swing votes to do it. So if right now it turns out that Texas gets a 62% turnout, you go to the popular vote, they're going to drive it up over 90% and the Democrats will return the favor. Uh, So if that's the case, we have no idea, by the way, what the true popular vote is given the fact that these states have no particular role to play and people don't push it to the nines. And so what happens is you change the election, things are going to go absolutely differently. Nobody will ever go to Alaska or Wyoming, maybe even to places like Colorado or Connecticut, because the places where you campaign are not states. They're in big metropolitan areas where you think you have yourself a comparative advantage. So if you want to change the electoral college, what you have to be prepared to do is to change from top to bottom the way in which the campaigning is going to take place. Would you be supportive of actually making that change? No, I'm not actually. And and let me see if I could explain why. Um, Go back to Bush v. Gore and you could see what the difficulty is going to be. 
What happened there is you had a relatively close vote in the popular vote. And what you had to do is to engage in a recount. And this recount only took place in one state. And nonetheless, it was the kind of brouhaha, the likes of which we've never seen before or after. I can still remember I was actually on one of these talk shows. I think it was NPR, one of the few times they've had me. And we started talking and several of the people there said, well, you know what? What we really need is a bit of comedy, a bit of cooperation in this case. Maybe one takes it for two years and the other takes it for two years. But I think they could work something out. And all of the political scientists thought that. And this is what I said. I don't know what these particular statutes say, but if anybody actually thinks they know what they said, they don't know what they're talking about. You give me two teams of crackerjack lawyers and give me any complicated electoral scheme, and you will be engaged in flights of fancy, which you could have never imagined in the abstract, and this thing will be a dog-eat-dog fight, which will take incredible turns at every single level of the case. And of course, that's exactly what happened. So now what you have to do is imagine that you have a national electoral vote in which there's a difference of only, say, 150,000 votes between the two parties. Now you have to run a nationwide recount. And do you really want to trust the Democrats to run it in New York and the Republicans to run it in Texas? Do you really want to have Mayor Richard J. Daley make sure that John Kennedy gets the election by swinging one state to him? The amount of litigation, the time that it would take to do this stuff in the event that things came close would be so enormous, so disruptive, so absolutely crazy in its implications that one simply shudders about the way in which the world would work. Uh, the other thing you could do is you could start to go to the House of Representatives, which is another way of breaking the impasse. And there, if I'm not mistaken, the Constitution says that the delegations vote by state. So you get California with one vote and Wyoming with another vote. And the California votes will depend on whether or not the state has been misapportioned or reapportioned with respect to the congressional delegation. And you want to talk about something which doesn't bear any relationship to the popular vote, try to figure out what the House of Representatives starts to look. So this is my general attitude. Better the devil you know than the devil that you don't know, because all of the weaknesses of this system are perfectly clear. But in truth, this is the basic situation. If, in fact, you get a popular vote, which is, say, 51 percent or 52 percent, I don't think you will ever find a situation where the party who gets that number of votes is going to lose in the electoral college. And if that's the case, then you just want to say, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm doing in marginal cases. Better the devil I know where I can isolate the difficulty than the devil that I don't know and have a nationwide recount which could consume the country for months. There's an interesting wrinkle here and one that I'm not sure the casual observer of American government is necessarily familiar with. I mentioned a couple moments ago these states trying to form this alliance to vote for the winner mm -hmm. of the popular vote. I mentioned before that that there are a couple of exceptions to the rule that states give all of their electoral votes to whoever won there. Nebraska and Maine both give some of their electoral votes by congressional district. Um, po point being, Richard, we have these big elections binding on the nation, and yet the states get to make their own rules about how those elections happen. Can you sort of describe that system to our listeners and, and whether you think it's a good one? 
Well, I don't think in many cases is a good one that you start doing this stuff because, you know, what happens is you can have a state like uh, Nebraska, which is 62% Republican, and there's one district which is 51-49 Democrat, and all of a sudden one of the boats flips over to the opposite side. That isn't, to me, an obvious uh, improvement under the situation. And if you break it down by uh, congressional districts, why don't you break it down even smaller by assembly districts? Well, you can't do that because you don't have enough seats, but still, I'm a little bit uneasy about it. I don't like having different systems in different states. Now, how does this happen? Well, it's part of the great genius of the American Constitution. We forget that the Constitution was put together not by individuals. It was put together by states. And the states, in many cases, were relatively jealous of the prerogatives that they had on a whole variety of issues and did not want to turn them over to the uh, public at large. Indeed, if you look at the earlier drafts of the Constitution, particularly the preamble, what you discover is what the preamble says originally was not we the people of the United States, it's we the understand, understand the, the undersigned delegates of the various states hereby ordain and establish. And the whole point about this was to make it clear in the original version that this is a compact among states, it's not a compact amongst individuals to form a national government. And in a whole variety of cases, for example, dealing with the federal power to tax state instrumentalities of government, People make a great deal of the fact that it says we the people rather than we the undersigned delegates because that establishes in the eyes of some uh, the supremacy of the national constitution and the federal government over the states, whereas traditionally parity was probably the dominant model. So when they come to the electoral situation, the key thing to look at is a provision which talks about who, how you determine votes in the House of Representatives. And one of the things that you could have done uh, was to create a system in which there was a national system of eligibility uniform to all particular states. That would mean that you'd actually have to find out what that system was. And nobody knew what it was because at that particular time, universal suffrage was an ideal long in the future. We didn't even get the first move towards that as a system until the Reform Acts in England in 1832. And it took a long time after that before it was completed. So what they did is they set a compromise. Look, you want to pick your House delegates your way in your state. We pick them in ours. And the way in which you let the House of Representatives is each state uses for its election of the House of Representatives that which internally it uses to elect its most populous branch, i.e. its assembly, rather than its Senate. So already what you do is you have a deep degree of decentralization in this stuff. This also came up in connection with um, uh, Bush v. Gore. Because one of the questions was, is how do you figure out what's going on in this particular case when it comes to counting the ballots and so forth? And there is a provision in the Constitution which says that, you know, when you're dealing with this, the rules in question are determined as the legislature inside the state sees fit for the resolution of these disputes. Now, if you take that, essentially the issue in Florida would have ended with the Secretary of State, and she, you recall, was a Republican. But no, what the basic situation was is that everybody read that clause out and said that you have to treat this as a kind of a generic equal protection clause, a case of some sort or another, and the Supreme Court went off into very weak arguments on that particular topic. Uh, So what we do is we have a Constitution on point after point 
point, which was designed to make sure that the states could control the central government rather than the other way around. And a series of judges, mainly progressive judges, have reversed it. So to give you but one other example of how dramatic this is, uh, there is a supremacy clause in the Constitution. And what that says is that the Constitution and the laws and the treaties passed pursuant to it shall be the supreme sort of the land. No state law withstanding. So the lowest federal statute that basically trumps the highest state constitution. But if you read how it's enforced, it goes exactly the opposite way. And it says the state courts, judges in every state shall be bound by this particular provision. So you get a supremacy clause determined by state judges. And in fact, there is no mechanism in the original constitution um, which allows the Supreme Court to get jurisdiction over these issues to create it unified. In fact, there is a provision which says exactly the opposite, that Congress can strip the Supreme Court of any appellate jurisdiction that it wants, that is in any lower court case. And there's absolutely nothing in the Constitution which authorizes the Supreme Court to review an adverse decision to the Constitution made by state court judges. So that gives you an idea of how the original system was put together. And over the time, it has completely collapsed in all of the judicial stuff, starting with a case called Martins against Hunter's Lessee in about 1816 or so. And what you're seeing now is an effort to make that kind of transformation on this type of question. So the last thing I'll ask you, especially in this cycle when there's a lot of agita over the two candidates that have been nominated, let me have you pull back for a minute and, and consider the bigger picture. Our processes for picking presidential nominees – they're relatively new. They are not spelled out in the Constitution. The, the primaries is currently constituted, haven't been around for all that long. And, and, of course, there's this range of criticisms of them from things like how much power is given to these small states like Iowa and New Hampshire. And I mean you can rehearse all the others. sort of dealer's choice for where you want to start. But he, here's the core question, Richard. Do we have a good system for how we pick our presidential nominees? No, it's terrible because what we do is we take majority votes inside the primaries where the sequencing gives a like I with disproportionate influence. And what that means is that you get a candidate which is not very close to the meeting of the electorate at large. So the Republicans will start to move to the right and the Democrats will start to move to the left. And then when you get to the general election, uh, the question is whether either of these two candidates will move back to the center where the median voter of the nation starts to lie. It used to be that people were prepared to do that. But looking at this current election, it seems perfectly evident that every time Hillary wants to move some way, it's further left, a higher tax, a bigger form of state regulation. Trump, God knows what direction he's moving in because left and right don't capture this man, but he certainly becomes more idiosyncratic. What's going on? is today each candidate thinks it's more attractive to try to appeal to your base and to bring out the voters than it is to win the voters in the middle. And so if you now have polarized candidates in the primaries, you're going to get a presidential election in which the choices are just going to be uh, absolutely enormous and very dangerous. So I think, in effect, that having the old system in which the electoral vote was advisory rather than conclusive may have been in an odd sense better. You'd be more democratic by having a democratic process at the end and a smoke-filled room at the beginning than you are by having two stages of democracy where the first stage of election makes the second one impossible to execute intelligently. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.